Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. On today's episode, we have Dr. Yuval Bar-Or. Dr. Bar-Or is an associate professor here at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. He's also the academic program director of the Flex MBA and Dual Degree Programs. Yuval also has this phenomenal website, pillarsofwealth.com. That's one word, pillarsofwealth.com. And he is the founder of the Institute for Financial Literacy in Medical Households. Dr. Barr-Or, you have been such a wonderful resource for us in the School of Medicine. And I'm so glad you reached out to us from the Cary Business School. I think it's been a couple years ago now. I remember my boss, uh, the Vice Dean Janice Clements, put me in touch with you it's it, you've just been phenomenal success. Our faculty love your courses and have been learning so much from you. And you've just been so gracious at coming over. And another great example of interdisciplinary cross pollination and collaboration. So I just want to um, shout out to all the other faculty affairs and faculty development deans listening that your business schools have great resources to help our faculty. And again, those of you faculty listening in the audience, um, Dr. Yuval Bar-Or has an expertise in the finance basics and essential financial information. He has two books that have been published. One is called Personal Finance Essentials for Doctors. The second book is Business Essentials for Medical Practices. And he has a third book in publication process entitled Investing Basics for Doctors. All three of those book and the contents therein are in um, Dr. Barrower's website, pillarsofwealth.com. So, um, you know, you, you can ex- explain and clarify, Yuval, but I was hoping today that you could just share on this snippet some of the basics of finance that you share with our faculty members in your day-long courses. You know, go ahead, share. What, do you, um, what would you like to um, talk to the audience about today? Well, again, thank you for having me on. I uh, usually offer a sequence of two full-day courses. You alluded to some of those courses in the introduction. Uh, at each of those last a full day, and obviously we don't have the luxury of 14 hours here, although I'm capable of speaking for 14 hours, but I'm sure your audience doesn't want no. me to. Uh, so, uh, uh, But I will try to uh, squeeze into roughly 20 minutes uh, some high-level commentary, some more specific advice, some of the essentials as we refer to them. The initiative is all about providing unbiased financial literacy education to physicians, and I very much emphasize the word unbiased. Why is unbiased education important? I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir and saying this. Uh, the first element is that as medical faculty, you don't get enough exposure to finance, speaking to the audience here. That puts you at a disadvantage. The exposure you get is often via financial advisors, brokers, or insurance agents. And of course, these are potentially conflicted professionals who have an agenda to sell products and services. And then finally, there are some bloggers in this space, but a lot of them have been accepting money from insurance companies, and that also creates conflicts of interest. So there's been a need for an unbiased source, a science-based, fact-based source of education where there isn't any concern that anything is being sold, that there are any financial products being sold or pitched through thinly veiled marketing efforts or, or anything else. So that's what sort of gave rise to this. And I suppose I should mention my connection to the medical community is that I grew up in a medical family. So I, I saw from the inside the, the struggles that medical families have. The general financial literacy topics include things such as budgeting. That's a very crucial early step. Saving, investing, retirement planning. We often talk about the time value of money. 
which has to do with interest rates, compounding, discounting effects, and so on. We talk about debt management a lot, buying a house, dealing with student loans. We talk uh, about negotiating employment contracts. We talk about evaluating needs and selecting insurance, whether one should do it yourself when it comes to all of this, including investing, whether it's wise to accept advice from peers. And we also talk about estate planning and asset protection. That tends to be less relevant for younger faculty, of course, but becomes increasingly relevant over time as those younger faculty accumulate assets and have a need to protect them. Uh, this is I'm just so excited. This is a huge list. And I know, just speaking for myself, I've I'm always been so intrigued and curious about finance, but just blatantly and uh, just unabashedly ignorant of all that. It just seems so much. And it's just... I've always told myself someday a bucket list is to learn this stuff, but I oftentimes I put it off because it just seems so huge and so much. And I've sat in you know, some of your courses and, of course, read your books, and I just love the way you've explained things in the book so clearly and so easily. And as you were talking, I was thinking, just as a personal side, we have to have you invited over to the Academy, Johns Hopkins Academy of Retirees. And talking about like leaving a legacy and those kinds of things. So I think, you know, your content is relevant not only for junior faculty, but for mid career, late career and retired faculty who may not have surprisingly, I'm, I'm sure some people haven't have, they don't have all their ducks necessarily in a row to leave, you know, their estate and their, their will in order. But anyway, we'll talk offline about that. So no, this is great. Go ahead that general sense that it's all overwhelming and one doesn't even know where to start. I think that's a factor that, that plays a role for many people when they think about it, they contemplate financial decisions, and then there's a natural procrastination instinct that sort of kicks in because everything seems so uh, anxiety-producing. And it certainly can be. It's, it's a new language. There's some math sometimes involved, which some of us find intimidating occasionally. But the bottom line is that it's a finite body of knowledge, and none of it is rocket science. So when it comes to the math... Uh, none of it is, is higher than a 10th grade level math. Mm -hmm. So it's all doable. And certainly anybody who's listening to this podcast, we've got very, very sophisticated people with a lot of education under their belts. There is nothing here that's beyond anyone's uh, comprehension or capability. There just seems to be a lot of it. And I think that's part of the intimidation factor is that it's, it's new and different. And we'd like to be good at, at what we do. And because we don't know uh, when it comes to financial matters, uh, we tend to shy away from making those decisions or even engaging. Yeah. The, the whole point of the initiative that I'm trying to spearhead is to make it clear to people that this is accessible content. You don't have to blindly hand off these decisions to an expensive advisor. You can do a lot of this on your own without any anxiety and avoiding fees. So I'll dive into some uh, essentials. Great. And uh, happy to, of course, entertain questions at any point. Thank you. So the first piece of advice I have for all folks is make sure you're contributing to your employer's retirement plan. So these plans include 401k plans, 403bs, 457bs, they could be IRAs. But the key is to make sure that you're putting money steadily into these plans. And the second element of this is that you're taking full advantage of any employer match that's on offer. Mm -hmm. Employers may automatically put money into the account for you or they may only put in matching funds. So if you put in 1% of your salary, they may put in 1% of your salary. They may contribute up to 5% of your salary. So you want to make sure that you're contributing the maximum that you can afford, but that you're at the very least trying to get the full match that the employer is giving you because it's very simply free money. Right. They're just giving it to you for participating. So that's and, a no-brainer. And, so, and also, for let me interject if you don't mind, for faculty who 
are be at the very early stages of their career, maybe you're a trainee and you're going to be a faculty member and you are interviewing right now, you have to figure that th- and this should be in your calculations about the match. Because as you just said, Yuval, that's free money. So you don't necessarily want to only compare salaries at institutions and other benefits and parking and space and startup packages. But that, that match can really be huge. At, at Hopkins, we're really fortunate. We have a 12% match. So that is amazing when our salaries are really below and, and pretty abysmal when you compare to other schools of medicine. However, we have that match, which is really hard to beat. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. So for any young folks out there who are in the process of interviewing, absolutely finding out what the various benefits are beyond just the headlines or the salary numbers, very important to get a full picture of what that package represents for you and your family. You need to make sure that you're making intelligent decisions about where your money is going within those accounts. So one decision you have to make is how much you're going to contribute. And the next decision is where those funds will be distributed among the different funds that are offered within your plan. There usually are not too many choices. I mean, we have seen some plans that have gone a little crazy with 400 different choices. Others historically have had very few choices, as few as a dozen or 10. Uh, most plans nowadays have something on the order of about a hundred choices, which is fairly manageable because they're typically in, in various categories, which are fairly easy to get our arms around. But the key is, as you're searching among those available funds, look for the ones with the lowest annual fees. Mm-hmm. That is really important because even low-looking fees, so a lot of fees traditionally on mutual funds have been around 1%. The industry, in fact, is sort of targeted 1% as their sort of average fee level. Uh, but it turns out that even that seemingly low 1%, it can have a really insidious effect on our nest eggs as they accumulate over long periods of time. We don't have the luxury of time to go through all those details, but it's pretty easy to establish this. It's a time value of money concept. If we just went through some simple math, we don't even need to go through the math because many others have done it for us. The bottom line is that if you're paying a 1% fee over, let's say, a 30-year period, you could be losing somewhere on the order of 15 to 20% of your nest egg to fees, mm. which is a really disturbing amount considering that it's a very passive process and it's hard to accept that anyone is really earning those fees from you. Right. And in contrast, if you're paying 2% fees annually, you could be reducing your nest egg on the order of 35%, which is an insane number oh yeah. because it's so damaging. And there are a lot of different fees that may accrue on different investments. You may be paying for the funds themselves. You may be paying for transactions. You may be paying an advisor who's advising you. So people don't realize it, but they may be close to 2%. So very important to, whether it's within these plans or other plans you've started on your own, uh, that you always look at the fees. Now, typically within these plans, you're not also paying advisor fees uh, or others, you're typically paying for the funds themselves, the management of the funds. And there are funds with fees that are much lower than 1%. So it's, those are the ones you want to find. If you've got two funds that look like they're investing in more or less the same stocks or bonds, underlying securities, go for the one with the lower fees. And you, you want to find ones, ideally, that are in the 0.1% range, 0.2% range, somewhere even lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not always available through these qualified plans. But if you're making these investments on your own, you will start your own IRA, you probably can find funds that have fees that it might be 0.05%, which are wonderful because, of course, they don't cause that damage that I've just described. So next item on our list here is to build up a cash reserve. 
some refer to this as an emergency or a rainy day fund. It's uh, very important for covering unexpected expenses. So you've got a roof leaking, a car needs to be replaced. It can also help if you're laid off. And during times like these, with the virus creating a tremendous amount of uncertainty around us, including a lot of economic uncertainty and anxiety, it's always good to know that you have cash sitting around just in case. We may not even know what you might need it for, but there's the comfort of knowing that it's there. Its, it's value is not decreasing as markets gyrate wildly, and it's there for you if you need it. Right. So you may have heard the expression cash is king. It's effectively recognizing that. So always have some, some cash reserve. And Yuval, what, you know, I've heard various rules of thumb around this, three months, six months of household expenses. What is your thought on that? It's a very household-specific decision. It depends on uh, how much uh, risk aversion your household has. By that, I mean how how much um, comfort level people have with with risk-taking. The more cash you have, the less risk you are facing because you've just got more of that rainy day fund around. But the more money you keep just in cash or equivalents like certificates of deposit or money market accounts, the less of your money is invested in productive assets like long-term investments in stocks. Mm-hmm. So there is a trade-off. Right. Uh, uh, the Most households don't need more than six months, I would say. Uh, and you've mentioned the, the rules of thumb typically range between three to six months worth of uh, gross income or net income. So bottom line is each household should make their own decision. Got it. So next item on my list here has to do with insurance. And the imperative here is to protect yourself and your family. So you want to use insurance products to remove the existential exposures, the most dangerous exposures to your family. Insurance, of course, includes life insurance, disability insurance, homeowners or renters insurance. And there are other types. I won't uh, spend time talking about them, but there are other types of insurance. Uh, and of course, the, the dangerous outcomes that we're protecting against are things like our own death, the death of a spouse, the death of a second earner in the family household disability, or a large liability claim due to something like a car accident. Insurance products and insurance agents will always offer us lots of other bells and whistles on top of these policies. So it's important to note that you, you don't generally need those bells and whistles. But the point is you just want to take the big exposures off the table. So often the most basic plans are sufficient for doing that. So to make that a more concrete example, suppose you're contemplating auto insurance and you're looking specifically at the deductible. You could take the perspective that you want the insurance company to be responsible for everything and insist on a very low deductible, which means that your obligation is very small and you're pushing almost all the obligation on the insurance company for everything above your deductible. But the insurance company is going to punish you, in a sense, by charging you more every year on your premium. They'll charge you a higher premium because you're pushing more risk to them. So a way that you can conserve money in the household is to say, well, instead of a $250 deductible, let's push it up to $1,000 or $2,000. So yes, that means that if you have a fender bender, you will have to finance that out of your own pocket. Mm-hmm. But it's only a thousand or two thousand dollars, and in the grand scheme of things, that's not going to make or break your household finances. On the other hand, by accepting the the higher deductible, you may be saving a few hundred dollars every year, and that adds up, because typically we don't have a fender bender every year. So uh, those are, are ways that you can make your insurance purchases a little bit more efficient, recognizing that really the insurance is there for the big picture losses but that you don't want to get caught up in, in paying for things that you don't really need in, in the grand scheme of things. 
next point is a very important. I think arguably we could have put this first, not that these are necessarily ranked in importance, and that is to communicate with your spouse or partner. Make sure you're on the same page. We know there's a lot of research. We know that the chief cause, the most common cause of relationship discord has to do with money. So being intelligent individuals, let's take that off the table, right? Communicate with all the adults in the household. Make sure you're on the same page. And then very importantly, as part of that, formulate together an annual household budget. And especially now during these trying times, it's important to to be communicating fully. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much stress and anxiety. By doing this together with our spouse or partner, we can relieve anxiety while while at the same time solving problems brings us closer together in all the right ways. And and that is an absolute no-brainer. Right. One of the things everyone should do, if you haven't done it already, is revisit your budget immediately. If you don't have a budget, create one. It's okay to create one that doesn't have all the details as long as you're capturing your big expenses and sources of income. But if you have not done this yet, then, then absolutely do. And specifically, look at those expenses that you can cut back on that are really not essential. Doing so, going forward over the next few months, will free up some more cash for you which will mean that you'll be padding more of your cash reserve or emergency fund, which will probably lower your anxiety because you'll, you'll feel like you're in control and you're taking steps that will help you to navigate whatever challenges come ahead. We all are concerned. We don't know if those challenges are going to last a month or 12 months or more. Who knows? Right. So certainly we're optimistic, but at the same time, uh, it's not just we can't pray and hope that things will turn out fine. We've got to be prepared. So we need to take some actions. And tearing down our budget and specifically expenses is an action we can all take immediately. Next item is, and this is related to the budget, is follow a strategic plan. So as you're communicating, share your thoughts as a household about what your financial planning is all about. What are the major goals? What are you looking to do? Are you focusing on building up a retirement nest egg because you want to retire early, or is your priority to set money aside for all your kids to go to college, or whatever else it may be. But it's important to share those thoughts and even write them down as part of a plan, because then everybody's looking at the same goals and understanding how to make decisions that will tie into and achieve those goals. That's very different from the way we typically make financial decisions. And so as an example, let's think about a resident or a fellow who uh, is completely oblivious of financial needs, and then a friend tells him or her, hey, did you hear about this thing called life insurance? Apparently we need it. So our young resident runs around and does some research and then just buys something because it's there and it's easy and convenient. And then 12 months later, that same resident is told by someone else, oh, have you heard of something called disability insurance? Apparently we need that. So the resident runs off, obviously distracted by various other um, uh, work-related needs and, and scrambles to get some disability insurance. So for many of us, that's how we end up with our insurance products, our investment products, and so on. And that's a, it's a really bad way to make decisions because there are always trade-offs. If you spend too much money on life insurance, you don't have money left over for a good disability insurance policy or to fund an IRA or to put into a retirement plan, which means you're being deprived of the employer match. Mm -hmm. So it makes a lot more sense to learn the bigger picture early on, come up with a plan that works for you and your household, and then all your decisions can be made within the context of that strategic plan. Way more efficient than impulsive one-off decisions. Yeah. And this is the one of the main arguments for having comprehensive courses available to our young physicians, and as you pointed out, Kim, also to our uh, all physicians, 
and all professionals for that matter, because the sooner they're exposed to the bigger picture, the, the sooner they're no longer suffering from uh, the symptoms you described of just being overwhelmed and not knowing where to start. Because once you've been introduced to the main topics, I mentioned they're not rocket science, you can get your arms around it, the anxiety goes away, and you can actually make decisions and move forward. I, I'm just, I have a couple questions for you. And so I'll let you go on through your list, but I, I want to get it out here before I forget it is I'm thinking of like, as you've been working with and teaching these day-long courses for our faculty, hundreds of faculty in the School of Medicine, if you've heard some common uh, or seen or heard of some common missteps and mistakes that junior faculty make, and the one I wa- was I'm hoping you'll address for those who are listening is you know, an admonition to live beneath or below your means, that I, you right. know, faculty who join and who have huge student debt and and have been working so hard and struggling and sacrificing and and get that first job and then want to get the McMansion and the fancy cars and the nice vacations. And then before you know it, when they start have building a family, they start realizing, oh my gosh, I, I still haven't paid off those, you know, medical school loans. And all of a sudden, you know, a pandemic hits and then their their margins are reduced at work and now they are worried. So I was just hoping you um, or wondering if you're going to address some of these common missteps and how we can help junior faculty and trainees as you do so well on make some wise decisions early on. Absolutely. Thank you for reminding me. In fact, that phrase living uh, within one's means is very important and it's uh, certainly connected to my comment about budgets, the whole one of the main benefits of creating a realistic budget is it tells you whether you're you are or are not living within your means, mm-hmm. and then you have actual numbers you can look at, and that makes it a lot easier to make decisions that bring you to living significantly below your means, which means you now have more cash available to pay off debt to do all those good things that we want to do. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that reminder. In addition, regarding the mistakes uh, that physicians tend to make, somewhat timely because a few weeks ago, um, actually I think it may have been last week, uh, I wrote an article, a guest article on a blog, which was titled 17 Mistakes Physicians Make. So the timing is good. Uh, In fact, uh, and so I have linked to that um, through my site so everyone can access that. uh, I think it's under the news items. Uh, what else did I want to say? Uh, oh, yeah, I, was, I just clicked on everybody. Um, pillarsofwealth.com. Yeah, it's right here. Money mistakes physicians make. Oh, this is great, Yuval. Thanks. Go ahead. Uh, so that's good timing and uh, a somewhat uh, humorous anecdote. When I was initially asked to do it, they, they asked me to put together the, the top 10 list. And I sat down and within five minutes, I had 17 items. So uh, <laughs> this is, a, this is a, obviously an important thing. Uh, and I'm really, really glad you highlighted it because uh, it actually now connects to some of my uh, other points. So the next point is do not procrastinate. When it comes to finance, time is your best friend if you make, early, if you make decisions early, if you invest mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. But time is your worst enemy if you waste it. And uh, again, if you'll permit me to attempt another humorous uh, anecdote, I'd like to joke in class that medicine – incorporates a procrastination principle, which is 
the do no harm principle. Mm. Right? So we, as, as physicians, we're trained to, to take a hands-off approach. Don't be intrusive or invasive. Don't commit to surgery or, or uh, pump people full of pharmaceuticals if the body can, can heal itself. Right. And that's a very, very good guideline when you're a physician. It's a really bad principle in financial matters because you have to take action again because time is not your friend if it's just ticking away and you haven't made decisions. So absolutely do not procrastinate. Related to some of the other comments we made, don't leave a lot of cash lying around in an unproductive checking account when it could be directed to higher yielding savings accounts, certificates of deposit, or potentially higher risk, higher return investments such as real estate or stocks. Mm -hmm. And this ties to your earlier comment, Kim, because this is in fact one of the items that's prominently included in that list of 17 mistakes physicians make. What's a large amount of money? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, my gosh. To millions of dollars. I I know physicians who have anywhere from $300,000 to to millions of dollars in checking accounts. Well, hold the the phone, please. I got to go over to my uh, online banking account and get all those millions out of my checking account. (laughs) I can't believe that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So tying this back to our earlier comment and some of your questions regarding what is an appropriate cash reserve, how much should we put in there? It's hard to imagine that a household needs more than $100,000 in cash, an average physician household. I mean, certainly some households are higher earning and they also have higher expenses, so it might make sense for them to have more. That's a lot of toilet Uh, paper. (laughs) Exactly, yes. So... um, Keep an eye on your balances. Sometimes we don't realize that that maybe a big tax return amount came in and we sold some assets somewhere, or perhaps we received uh, a bequest from someone. Maybe it's uh, Mm. through someone's will. We received some cash, and and because we're busy, physicians obviously are very, very busy people, uh, and uh, some decisions physicians make are really life and death, so it does mean that it's reasonable to put other decisions off. But you don't want to procrastinate over months and months and years and years, and that is what we sometimes see, and that's really, it harms us yeah. when we're not using our money productively. So finally, because I come circle, full circle, excuse me, Kim, to um, your earlier uh, uh, introduction uh, regarding the website, there's a lot of information all freely available on the website yeah. right i'll emphasize that if you wish if people wish to interact with the website so there you, certain people can respond to the blog and ask questions also there's a lot of book content in the form of ebooks and they mm-hmm. were designed by topic where people can comment uh, provide examples ask questions and I will be going through and answering those questions and you can participate anonymously so just to make everyone feel comfortable if you feel there's maybe something that might be embarrassing to you or whatever the issue may be, you're trying to take it off the table by simply making anonymous. There's a space there for a name. You can make up any name you wish and then make your comment, response, question. And that is what it was designed for. So really, I urge folks who are listening, that is what it's for. It was designed for you, Mm -hmm. you plural. So please take advantage of it. And uh, I'd be delighted to answer any questions people have. It really is a great website, Yuval. It, pillarsofwealth.com. I mean, there, like you said, it is chock full of resources and just great reads and great tidbits. And yeah, the, your podcast, the blog, the news, the, the books. Um, yeah, totally. Um, and it's so, what I love about your writing and your, as well as your classes, is you just have such a great calming demeanor and style about you that it really, you just have ripped open the curtain behind so much of this stuff that just as you know we talked about is so overwhelming and seems complicated and 
So you're, you really are a great teacher, and Carrie Business School is lucky to have you, and so are we in the School of Medicine. Thank you. It was very kind. Well, this is uh, – did, did I cut you off arbitrarily? I mean, you're, are you done, Yuval? No, I, that was uh, what I prepared to speak about. I'm happy to respond to any other thoughts, ideas, questions you may have. No, this this has just been wonderful. This is perfect. I think it was just a great, you know, amount of time, folks. I hope you've uh, learned um, some, you know, interesting stuff and it's kind of in cure, uh, made you curious to go to thepillarsofwealth.com or think about your finances and, um, you know, maybe look in your own institutions for resources that might be available to you. But this has been great. And you have been learning learning from and learning about uh, finance basics from Dr. Yuval Barr-Or, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. He's the academic program director for the Flex MBA and the dual degree programs. And again, that pillarsofwealth.com website. It's great. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.